Hello and welcome to the Toasted Tale podcast. My name is Jim Lillywhite Bewley, and you're listening to the Spotlight Playlist, a series of shows where we take one person in particular and we do a deep dive on their life and find out what is interesting about them. Now, for fans of the Toasted Tale podcast, you will know that we have done similar shows like this before. But in more recent episodes, I'm trying to organise the shows a bit more, so if you stumble upon one of my episodes and like it in particular, then you can easily find similar ones. So like the Capturing series that we do occasionally, hopefully you'll enjoy the Spotlight series as well. Now, the Toasted Tale podcast was originally started to find stories where maybe they weren't represented highly enough already. And a massive underrepresentation in history and in stories are women who have done incredible things. Now, as most Toasted Tale podcasts do, this one started from a random uh, conversation in my life. I was around the dinner table, we were all talking as a family, and the subject of espionage was brought up. And in particular, famous historical spies who impacted the world. Now, by their very nature, a lot of those involved in espionage were never found, but those who have have become interwoven into popular law. Now, it was at this point where one of uh, the family mentioned a lady called Gertrude Bell, who was a very famous spy, diplomat, administrator and archaeologist who came to prominence surrounding the events of World War I. It was the fact that she was a very important woman who held a great deal of influence and was an incredible spy that caused this conversation to erupt. And I had this idea, I I thought, well, I wonder how many famous female spies there have been that deserve a podcast making about them. The art of espionage itself is just rife with incredibly engrossing stories, and I just felt like there should be some really interesting ones here. So, what we're going to do today, we're not going to do one on Gertrude Bell, I will probably do one of those in the future. Anyone wanting that will have to wait a little bit longer. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to go back quite far to the English Civil War, where we have one Jane Horwood, the Royalist Spy. So much of Jane Horwood's work took place between 1642 and 1646, which were the four years where the English First Civil War took place. Let's go back a little bit before, however, to her early life to understand her motivations and where she got to the position of secret agent. Growing up in London, near Charing Cross, she was the daughter of a German-born Scot, a man named William Ryder, and her mother was a lady named Elizabeth de Bousset from Antwerp. Now, these were two people of high standing. Her father, William, was the principal harbinger of seven overseers at the Royal Mews for King James, and this was uh, a responsibility to arrange all royal travel arrangements. 
and her mother was a lavender or a laundress to the Queen Anne of Denmark. So they already had quite a high position in society. William unfortunately died in 1617, and two years later, Elizabeth, the mother of Jane, remarried a man named James Maxwell, a groom to the bedchamber of Princes Henry and Charles. Maxwell's influence increased year on year, becoming the Garter Usher in 1621, and then the Black Rod in 1622. He became a wealthy man, accruing land and property, and forming monopolies on trade and tax exemptions within the country. Between the years of 1628 and 1640, James Maxwell propelled his family into prominence, becoming one of the king's principal money-raisers. This was an incredibly important role, and helped the royal family exert control over their domain, raising funds where needed, often requiring him to be in court. And it was in these halls where Jane got her real education. She witnessed her stepfather's skill as a hard and uncanny operator, navigating dangerous political waters at court and parliament, but still ending up coming on top and elevating himself in the process. Having this man as a role model, whilst Jane had a private tutor to improve her letters and was able to write in an educated and courtly style, she was able to become so at ease among the great and powerful that would really show in the coming years as her prestige and power would increase. It's unfortunate that we don't have any portraits or images of Jane Horwood. What we do have are two descriptions that I'd like to give you. Both are a little bit different, but may give you an idea of what she looked like. So firstly, we have a description in a report to the Derby House Committee in 1648, which described her as, quote, a tall, well-languaged gentlewoman with a round visage, and with pock-holes in her face, end quote. It's not the most complimentary one, but we have another which is a little bit nicer, quote, She is a pretty one, but for her deep red-coloured hair, such a pretty witty lass. With such a brave house and state as she might induce a young fellow to think her very beautiful, end quote. Jane had a marriage arranged for her by her stepfather in 1634 to the four years younger Brome Horwood. He, who was the heir to the country estates at Sandwell Park, which is in West Bromwich, northwest of Birmingham, and Holton Park near Oxford. This was a bit of a conservative backwater, so you can imagine that Jane clashed with her new family, being the strong and confident woman she was. She had four children, three of whom who died, and one who eventually lived to adulthood. But what I'm more interested in here is when tensions started to rise across the country. In the 1630s, there were rumblings between the king and parliament. James Maxwell being the black rod for the royal family was in the middle of this standoff, 
And when, in the summer of 1642, this tension escalated into war, the country was split in half. The parliamentarians seized London, and Oxford became the new capital for the royalist cause. Even though Jane had been moved away from the capital and where the political firefighting was taking place, the king moving to Oxford brought her right back in contention, being very closely to Halton Park where she resided. It was here where she started working for the crown and did her best work. There was a road connection between Oxford and London, which crossed the River Thames at a place named Wheatley Bridge, about a mile from Halton Park, which made that location and by proxy Jane an important part of the Royalist network. One of the most important resources, as is today in war, are the finances. Can you and do you have enough money to maintain your armies, and to also just continue on the fight, whether that is politically, militarily, or culturally. London was at this time, as it is now as well, the financial hub of the country. But as we mentioned earlier, the parliamentarians had seized London. So, Jane Hallward's real contribution at the beginning came as a connector between notable London wealthy merchants who supported the king. Notably, Sir Paul Pindar, who helped to finance the royalist cause. Jane was a key organiser and smuggler of this money, getting it to Oxford and to the king. We don't have records for every year, but we do have, for example, for 1644, where, alone in that year, Jane arranged the movement of at least £80,000, which in those times was an incredible amount of money. Just so you are aware, the buying power of £80,000 in 1644 alone is almost £10 million today. And this was in gold coin from the capital to Oxford often cleverly concealed in soap barrels or other such like smuggled through the parliamentary checkpoints. This was one year, so you can only imagine that tens of millions in today's money was siphoned from these parliamentary rebels to her king. This financial support was undoubtedly vital to the cause, and probably allowed King Charles to maintain his war for many years beyond what he would have normally been able to. Regardless of this, after three years of experienced service, the King and the Royalist cause failed when they surrendered in June 1646. The King at this point was in negotiations, technically out of power, and trying to find a way back in. Jane's work did not stop, however. She pivoted with the changing circumstance. She started tracking the king's movements from Newcastle, then Northamptonshire, and then often returning to London, where she maintained a connection with London merchants loyal to the crown. She even continued to embezzle funds from Parliament, 
for example in May 1647, where she arranged for more gold to be sent to the king, who had at this time taken residence in Hampton Court. When I say taken residence, however, he was kind of a prisoner. The people in Parliament didn't want him escaping from under his nose to rise rebellion again. So he ended up moving to the Isle of Wight from Hampton Court, and then, after a few attempts to escape, and following a minor uprising in Newport, he was confined to Carisbrook Castle. Once again, it was here where Jane enters the picture, arriving in Newport in December 1647, and being the head collaborator, among many others, to enact the king's escape from his prison. She was, by everyone's accounting, the escape manager, coding letters that were smuggled in and out to keep their liege in the picture. What followed was a series of failed attempts to escape, the first where the king became stuck between the iron window bars on his cell, the second which involved a hacksaw and nitric acid which were smuggled in, being abandoned for fear of betrayal. A third attempt which involved Jane chartering a ship from London, uh, proceeding down the Queensborough on the River Medway, and intent on taking the king to Holland, was all ready to be put into place when, unfortunately, had to be put on ice. Jane waiting five weeks to ensure that everything was in place, and then on the 29th of May, when the king's guards, who were bribed to turn a blind eye to the attempt, betrayed him. So at this point, you're probably getting an idea in your mind of King Charles being a pretty rubbish prisoner always trying to escape. Regardless of this fact, he was able to persuade his jailers to allow more private meetings with supporters. And this is where Jane Horwood's relationship with the king took another turn. She, of course, being a great fan of the crown, was invited and exchanged letters with the king, but came to Carisbrook Castle on the 28th of August, 1648, where Jane was invited to join the king and spent several days with him alone where their relationship moved beyond just the professional and more into a physical and sexual way. Things were becoming more dangerous for the king. The parliamentary hardliners were not happy with accepting anything but their demands in the negotiations that were ongoing. The king had grown wary of escape attempts, maybe knowing now that they were impossible. On the 30th of January, 1649, after a brief trial and following all the efforts of his supporters, King Charles I was beheaded outside the banqueting house on Whitehall. It's unlikely that Jane's activities were ever fully known by Parliament, she did have a brief spell in prison when her embezzlement of parliamentary funds was discovered in 1651, 
but she was released once her mother repaid the money. Now, she had been for many years now focusing on the royal cause, and this, as you may imagine, strained many of her relationships, family-wise, friends. Her husband, Brome, was openly living with another woman, and on one occasion beat Jane so viciously that she was taken to Oxford for treatment and refuge. Thirty years of litigation followed, where Brome repeatedly refused to pay Jane alimony of £300 a year. He constantly avoided paying her, and in 1657 wrote, quote, If she were dying, and a halfpenny would save her, I would not give a halfpenny. End quote. Even after the restoration of the royal family, Charles II in 1660, her efforts to the crown were not properly recognised, which is strange. A lot of the men who worked around her were rewarded with government posts or monopolies, and the women may be gifted precious jewellery or money. We may never know why she never received such boons as well but it may have been simply that she did not request it like the others. Near the end of her life, and after Broome, her ex-husband's death in 1684, Jane was not in the will, though their daughter Diana was. Jane died only a few months later at Halton, at the age of 72, and she was in a state of genteel poverty with modest personal possessions valued at £40, which is around 4500 in today's terms. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode of the Toasted Tale podcast, a spotlight episode on Jane Horwood, a woman who was a complex character at the time, when families were split by politics, religion and civil war. Her confident character and secret activities affected her family, her country and the history of the British royal family. She was devoted to her cause and faced constant danger in her service. A meticulous planner and a successful gold runner that often was breathtaking in its scope. She was a major contributor to the royalist war effort and deserved more recognition than she got. William Seymour, Jane's brother-in-law, wrote, quote, had the rest done their parts as carefully as Horwood, the king would have been at large, end quote. If you enjoyed listening to today's episode of the Toasted Tale podcast, then please consider subscribing or following the show. You can also follow me on social media on Facebook and Twitter at Podcast Tale. And if you want to support the show monetarily, then I have a Patreon, the link to which will be in the description below. You can get lots of benefits as a Toasted Tale listener, and it helps me out greatly. Thank you for everyone in advance. I look forward to speaking to you all again soon for another Toasted Tale by the Fireside.